What's going on, world? Welcome to Changing the Narrative. This is a show where we discuss everything from politics, philosophy, theology, social issues, economics, and more from a biblical perspective. The main goal of this show is to find truth. What is the truth about all these matters, and how should we respond once we have a greater understanding of the issues? Let's discuss. What's going on, world? I am back. Sorry about the delay. Had some personal issues I had to deal with. Anyway, today's show, we're going to be talking about the purpose of life. What is the purpose of life? What is it all about? Right? That's the million dollar question. And the reason why I chose this topic is because um, I attended a funeral not too long ago. And when I was there, my mother made a comment and she said, you know, you go through all these different obstacles in life and you deal with conflicts and you you have uh, disagreements with people, you have friendships, you have enemies and you're chasing material things. But in the end, you get put in a box and buried. And I said, you know what, that that sounds so harsh, but it is a harsh reality. Uh, we can't take anything with us once we leave. And the funny thing about life is that no one makes it out alive. I mean, I, I believe that we we do live even after this life. The question is, what's the next destination? And um, as a Christian, I believe that, uh, you know, depending on where you stand with, with Christ, uh, there is or there are two destinations. You guys know what that is. So um, the question is, I mean, why, why do we get so consumed in what what's here? Like what is temporary? And I and that's hard for me, too, because, you know, sometimes I'm, I'm I find myself chasing after money and chasing after material things stressing over work and clients and things like this but in the end i can't take any of that with me right um and i'm not saying that you shouldn't place some type of importance on these things you do have to worry about your food or you do have to be concerned about eating you have to be concerned about making a living things like that but um Sometimes I find myself and I see, you know, some friends of mine, family members get so consumed in temporary things that they forget to focus on the eternal. They forget to focus on what really matters. What is the next destination after this? You know, scripture talks about storing your treasure in heaven and uh, not storing your treasure here where they can where those things can be consumed by moths and they can rust. Right. Focus on the eternal. And um, I'm going to play this presentation by Frank Turek. He's a Christian apologist, and he talks about the purpose of life. What is it? What is it all about? And uh, he, he made a comment. He said, uh, you're going to be dead a, long, a lot longer than you're going to be alive. So, uh, yeah, a after he said that, I said, you know what, man? I mean, you maybe it would be a wise thing to focus on your eternity, right? And some of you may not be Christian, but I would challenge you to think about some of these things. So on that note, I'm going to play this presentation by Frank Turek. I hope you guys enjoy it. You know, I hope it gives you some perspective. And uh, let me know what you think. Well, let me start out by saying there are two things um, that you're never supposed to talk about in polite company. What are the two things? 
Religion, religion. Yeah, religion and politics, or politics and religion. Those are the things you're never supposed to talk about in polite company. Turns out those are the only two things worth talking about, right? How are we going to live now, and how are we going to live in the afterlife if, in fact, there is one? What could be more important than that? So tonight, we're actually going to talk about both of these things, well, pre predominantly the religion part of it. How should we live, then? What is the... What's this all about? Why are we here? In fact, let me ask the question I ask college audiences. This is the first question I always bring up. What is the purpose of your life? This is the interactive portion of the program. So just <laughs> jump right on in. <laughs> Why are we here? What's the deal? To serve. Randy? Prepare yourself. Prepare yourself for eternity. Anybody else? Spread God's word. Spread God's word, Marty says. Anybody else? Why are we here? Help others. Help others, Alan. All right. Anybody else? Why are we here? To serve God. Put serve God and others. Serve God and others. God put us here. Okay. Well, first of all, how do we know that those things are the purpose of life? How do we know that? But how do we know this is true? You have to believe it through faith. You do have to believe it through faith, but I think there's evidence. I think you can show beyond any reasonable doubt that this book is true. True. The problem here is, is that for most people out there, the real purpose of life is to get a whole bunch of stuff. Is life, though, just a glorified Monopoly game? Get a whole bunch of stuff now because when the game is over, it's all going to go back in the box. Is that what life's about? To some. To some. One preacher put it this way to his congregation. He said, one day you are going to die. And they're going to dress you up, put you in your best suit. Then they're going to put you in a box. Then they're going to go dig a hole somewhere. Then they're going to lower that box into the hole and throw dirt in your face and go back to the church and eat potato salad. <laughs> Is that it? You just take a dirt nap for all eternity. There's no other purpose to life. That's the way most of the world lives, right? Just whoever gets the most toys wins. It is a glorified Monopoly game. And it's all going to go back in the box when you die. Now, what we're going to talk about tonight is really what is the purpose of life? Why are we here? You guys have all touched on it in different areas, but we're going to zero in on the true meaning. Why are we here? Why are we here as human beings? Why are we here as men? Now, if you ask that question of an atheist or a humanist, this will be the answer you get. Anyone know who this guy is, Francis Crick? He creeps me out already. He, he does kind of creep you out already, doesn't he? With those bushy eyebrows and looks like he's Dracula or something. Francis Crick was one of the co-discoverers of the DNA molecule. And in 1953, he co-discovered this molecule. And he is an atheist, or was an atheist, no more. He's passed on. Uh, a materialist. And in 1993 or 4, he wrote a book called The Astonishing Hypothesis. And this was The Astonishing Hypothesis. Check this out. The Astonishing Hypothesis is that you, your joys, your sorrows, your memories, and your ambitions, your sense of personal identity and free will are, in fact, no more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. In other words, you are just a meat machine. 
You are just molecules in motion. You may think you're making free choices, but you're not. You're programmed to make, make those choices. You may think you're actually thinking thoughts and making choices, you're not. Free will is an illusion. You're just a meat machine. Everything that you do, everything that you say, every thought that comes to your mind is the result of a previous natural cause. This is called materialism. There's nothing beyond the material world out there. We're just glorified meat machines. Is that the real purpose of life? That there isn't a purpose? That everything's meaningless? We're gonna come back to Crick a little bit later, but no, I don't think that's the case. Here's what we're gonna try and do tonight, and this is gonna set up our whole time together. First thing we're gonna talk about is who would know life's ultimate purpose? If you wanted to know life's ultimate purpose, who would you go to? Second question is, what's, what is life's ultimate purpose? Why are we here? Is there one answer as to why we're here? Once we find that out, we're going to talk about how should we live then. And then if I time this just right, we'll have absolutely no time for your questions. <laughs> All right, so uh, why don't we start here at point one. Uh, who would know life's ultimate purpose? If you wanted to find life's ultimate purpose, who would you go to? The maker. Yeah, you'd go to the maker, wouldn't you? Because if you just go to human beings, why is one person's opinion any better than any other person's opinion? It's not objective, right? Human beings have subjective opinions about what the ultimate meaning of life is or the ultimate purpose of life. Why is anyone's per, uh, point of view any better than anyone else's? This is also true, by the way, with morality. If there is no God, then who's to say that Mother Teresa was any better than Hitler? If there's no standard beyond humanity, then it's just two opinions going at one another, two human beings talking about what morality's about. Well, that's subjective. That's in the subject. That's not in the object, God. So if we really want to find out what the real purpose of life is, we've got to see A, if there's a God, and B, if there is, what's his purpose for us? This was pointed out, I think, in a interesting way in one of my favorite movies of all time. I'm gonna show you the intro to it and then we'll talk about it. Check this out. Apollo 13 flight controllers, give me a go, no, go for launch. You know that Easter vacation trip we had planned for Acapulco? Uh-uh. Procedures? Go. Control. Go flight. There might be a slight change in destination. Really? Maybe say, the moon. <gasps> Booster. Go. Retro. We're go, flight. GNC. We're go. And I take the controls and I steer it around. FAO. We're go, flight. For a nice, soft landing on the moon. Better than Neil Armstrong. Does it bother you that the public regards this flight as routine? It's nothing routine about flying to the moon. I can vouch for that. Launch control. This is Houston. We are go for launch. something out into space. It's definitely a gas of some sort. Flight, the heart rates are skyrocketing. The Apollo 13 spacecraft is apparently losing breathing oxygen. The emergency has ruled out any chance of a lunar landing. Why are so many people here? Something broke on your daddy's spaceship. I have a request from the news people. Take it up with my husband. 
he'll be home on Friday. Client me, I've lost the radio contact. Econ, what's your data telling you? It's, it's reading a quadruple failure. That can't happen. It's, it's got to be instrumentation. The ship's bleeding to death. This rate, we're going to skip right out of the atmosphere, and we're never going to get back. But we're looking at less than 15 minutes of life support in the Odyssey. We never lost an American in space. We're sure I'm not going to lose one on my watch. Odyssey, do you read me? How long does it take to power up the limb? Three hours by the checklist. We don't have that much time. Who knows what really went wrong on Apollo 13? Anyone know what happened? We most of us were too young. What actually happened in Apollo 13 is someone inadvertently dropped oxygen tank two an inch and a half or two inches prior to installation. And that mere slight drop in that tank created a problem on the internal wall of the oxygen tank. And ultimately, when they got out into space, it exploded. And it wound up that they had a problem uh, that had never been simulated before. Triple failures in all sorts of different systems. And that's why the folks on the ground are going, we, we don't know how to deal with this. What are we going to do? And here they are hurtling away from Earth toward the moon, and they don't have enough oxygen, enough power on the spacecraft, it seems, to get home. These are the actual guys that were on Apollo 13, Jim Lovell and these two other gentlemen. Lovell was the mission commander. Uh, this is the guy that Tom Hanks played. Uh, now, what happened on the ground is very interesting. They all got together and tried to figure out what to do. And uh, after I play this little clip, I want you guys to think about what was the actual plan of action they decided to take. Who did they go to to try and figure out what to do? Check it out. You're telling me you can only give our guys 45 hours? That's Gene Kranz. Brings them to about there. Gentlemen, that's not acceptable. Power is everything. What do you mean? Without it, they don't talk to us. They don't correct their trajectory. They don't turn the heat shield around. I, we got to turn everything off now. They're not going to make it to re-entry. What do you mean everything? With everything on, the LEM draws 60 amps. At that rate, in 16 hours, the batteries are dead, not 45. And so's the crew. We got to get them down to 12 amps. Oh. 12 12 amps. amps. How many? You, run, you can't run a vacuum cleaner on 12 amps, John. You got to turn off. You have to turn off the radars, cabin heater, instrument displays, the guidance computer, the whole smack. Whoa, guidance computer. What if they need to do another burn? Gene, they won't even know which way they're pointed. The more time we talk down here, the more juice they waste up there. I've been looking at the data for the past hour. That's the deal. That's the deal. Okay, John. And then we finish the burn, we'll power down the limb. All right. Now, in the meantime, we're going to have a frozen command module up there. In a couple days, we're going to have to power it up using nothing but the reentry batteries. Have we been tried before? Hell, we've never even simulated it before, Gene. Well, we're going to have to figure it out. I want people in our simulators working reentry scenarios. 
I want you guys to find every engineer who designed every switch, every circuit, every transistor, and every light bulb that's up there. Then I want you to talk to the guy in the assembly line who actually built the thing. Find out how to squeeze every amp out of both of these machines. I want this mark all the way back to Earth with time to spare. We never lost an American in space. We're sure not going to lose one on my watch. Failure is not an option. Failure is not an option. The famous line, which was turned into a book. Now, who did they decide to go to to figure out what to do? People that made it. I want you to find every engineer, every person that designed every little switch and amp and circuit breaker on this thing. I want you to find it, find them, and let's find out what this thing can do. Right? If you want to find out what something's made of, you got to go to the creator. Who created it? And that's what we need to do. If we're going to figure out what the ultimate purpose of life is, we got to we got to go to the creator and say, well, why are we here? If there's no creator, there's no ultimate there's no ultimate purpose, no objective purpose, just in you, whatever you decide, and that's just your opinion then. So, let's take a look. What is life's ultimate purpose? Here's where we're going to go. We're going to go to the book of Ecclesiastes. You go, what? Ecclesiastes? You got to be kidding me. Never heard of it. It's in the Old Testament, about in the middle or so. And this book has a lot to say about the meaning of life. It was written by King Solomon, who reigned about 1000 BC or so, actually about 970 to 931 BC. So this is nearly 3000 years ago. All right. And Ecclesiastes is right after Proverbs, if you can find that, which is sort of near the middle of the Bible, right after Proverbs, which, as you know, is right after Psalms. So Ecclesiastes, what does Ecclesiastes mean? It means a convener of an assembly. If we want to shorten it, we could say Ecclesiastes means teacher or preacher. So you got this teacher, you got this preacher out there, who is going to tell us something about the meaning of life? Now, before we get into that, let's take a look at who Solomon was really quickly. And probably people on the street know Solomon because of his wisdom, particularly when two harlots came to him arguing over a baby. Have you heard of this story? Okay. Uh, one harlot lost her baby, slept on it in the night and smothered it and tried to take the other harlot's baby and say it was hers. So they come to King Solomon saying, hey, he, that's my baby there. And the other lady saying, no, 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 that's my baby. So how does Solomon figure out who the, who's the real mom? What does he do? What does he do? Yeah, he says, here's what you do. Get me my sword. I'll solve this. We'll just cut that baby right in half. And immediately, one of the ladies said, no, no, give the baby to the other girl, to, 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 to the other lady. What did Solomon say at that point? You're the mother. You're the mom. That's right. Give the baby to the one who said, don't kill it. The one who said, go ahead, cut it in half. She's not the mom. Very wise. Very wise. All right, as I said, uh, well, first of all, Solomon is the son of David and Bathsheba. David, of course, committing adultery with Bathsheba, ultimately yielded Solomon, not on the first pregnancy, the first pregnancy that resulted from the liaison, what happened to the baby? Died. Baby from the initial uh, pregnancy died, but Solomon came later 
He reigned, as I said, from 970 to 931. He built the first temple for Israel. There were only three kings in Israel to this point. There was Saul, then David, and then David's son, Solomon. Okay, and he built the first temple, Solomon did. Extremely wealthy, had more wealth than virtually anybody in the world. He was the wisest man who ever lived, according to the Bible, pretty much until Christ, because Christ in, in, the, in the Gospel of Matthew says, somebody greater than Solomon is here. That was him. He wrote Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and every guy's favorite, the Song of Solomon. If you haven't read the Song of Solomon, if you don't, if you don't think there's some pretty hot material in the Bible, <laughs> you need to read, read the Song of Solomon because it's basically, it talks about erotic love in there. And my wife hates it. <laughs> she hates it because she just hates Solomon because Solomon was such a womanizer. First of all, he married Pharaoh's daughter, but he also married about 700 other people. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines who turned him from God. The foreign wives turned him from God. And so my wife's like, oh, sure. In the Song of Solomon, he's, he's talking about his love for this one girl. I'm sure he had the love for this one girl. He's got 1,000, basically, partners, 700 wives and 300 concubines. Yeah, he's really enamored with this one. I said, look, it's in the Bible, hon. Let's go with it. <laughs> it's good. And finally, the kingdom split after his death. Before Solomon, you had Israel. After Solomon, you had two kingdoms, a northern kingdom, Israel, and a southern kingdom, Judah. And that's where we get the word Jew from, Judah. Okay, and Jesus came from the tribe of Judah. All right, so that's kind of a little background on Solomon. More could be said. But he wrote Ecclesiastes, and he talks about the purpose of life right there, in verse 2, what does he say? He says, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. What does man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. Everything about life is meaningless. What? This is in the Bible? Yeah. This sounds like Francis Crick. Everything in the Bible is meaningless? Let's keep, let's keep reading. Or everything in life is meaningless. In chapter 2, he says, I tested all pleasures. Take a look at chapter 2. We're going to go through all 12 chapters in a very short period of time. So we're kind of skimming over, just kind of give you the overall picture. In verse 1, he says, I thought in my heart, come now. I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. And Solomon goes on to talk about all the things that he tried. He said, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs of water groves and flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more uh, herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers and a harem as well. The delights of the heart of man. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desires. I refused my heart no pleasure. And he says, after I surveyed everything my hands had done, I concluded everything was meaningless. Meaningless. He tried everything, just like we do in our society today. If I could only get enough money, then 
I would have meaning. If I could only get the right woman, then I'd have true meaning. If I could only get the right job, then I'd have true meaning. I'd feel content. Solomon tried it all. In fact, if you want to alliterate it, here's what Solomon did. He tried wine. He tried works. He tried wealth. He tried women. He tried wisdom. And none of it delivered. He said everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. And we think this way in our society, too. It's just that next promotion. It's just that next car. It's just that next raise. It's just that next woman. It's just the next big adrenaline rush. Then I'll have it. Then I'll be content. Solomon says, you who tried it all doesn't work. You know, we intellectually, we know this, don't we? We know that... If we get all the money and all the prestige and all the power and everything we really want, we know it's not going to deliver because we see all these other people and it doesn't work for them. But we always want to try it ourselves. Maybe we're the exception, right? <laughs> if only I could get that. I could be the exception and I could really find true happiness if I had all those things. Solomon says, forget it. You know, if money brought happiness, we'd be the happiest nation in the world, wouldn't we? We're the richest nation in the world, yet we lead the world in all indicators of unhappiness, don't we? We lead the world in drug use, an indicator of unhappiness. We lead the world in divorce, an indicator of unhappiness. We lead the world in child abuse. We lead the world in crime. We lead the world in just about every negative thing, yet we have everything that we could ever want materially. We've got everything to live with and nothing to live for. And so we keep trying to find that next thing. As St. Augustine said, our hearts will only be content when we find our rest in thee, in God. There's that God-sized vacuum in our hearts, and we try and fill it with everything else. And ultimately, you find out it's meaningless. But Solomon wasn't done. A little bit later, said, he said, So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. In other words, I'm just going to leave everything that I've worked so hard for to somebody else, and I don't even know if that person is going to be a good person or not. He goes on to say, what does a man get for all his toil and anxious striving with which he labors under the sun? All his days, his work, his pain, his grief. Even at night, his mind does not rest. This too is meaningless. You ever lay up at night thinking about what the market's going to do tomorrow? I do sometimes. Do you? Yeah. You know, the more you have, the more you have to worry about it. You don't own it. It owns you. I heard one guy who lost everything, and he said to his wife, "Hun, we have no more money problems. <laughs> we don't have it anymore. Don't have to worry about it. Greg was telling me over dinner that Donald Trump once said at a point when he was $900 million in debt, he and his wife, whatever wife it was, I don't know, um, they were walking along a street in New York, and they saw a homeless man. And Donald said to his wife, he said, see that guy over there? He's $900 million richer than we are. Wow. Yeah, the only way to have less than nothing is to be in debt, right? So Solomon's saying it's all meaningless. But here in chapter 3, he says, God has set eternity on the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. 
There's something about that seems to be built right into us that we know that this temporal world isn't it. We've got eternity built into us, and yet we don't really know where the whole world's going. From Solomon's perspective, he's saying, we don't know. We've got this longing. We've got this sense that there's something more, but we can't quite figure out what God is doing. He says, man's fate is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits both of them. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Man has no advantage over the animal. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust, and to dust all return. You're saying this is in the Bible that we're going to wind up in the same places in the in the same place in the afterlife as the animals? That's in the Bible. Keep reading. That's just chapter three. Let's move on over here to chapter four. He says, and I saw that all labor and all achievement, in verse 4, spring from man's envy of his neighbor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. You see uh, your neighbor with a new car, you're thinking, I got to get that or something better. He's got a boat, you don't have one, you got to get one. He's got a brand new wife. Wow. The trophy wife. One good decision I made was I married my trophy wife first. <laughs> okay. My wife likes that line. Um, <laughs> that's right. I know other guys have been married so many times they go, this is my current wife. No. Um, I've just been fortunate to marry the right woman. Great woman. But he says, look, we're always coveting. We're always envying someone else. If this isn't really kind of the the negative side of the American dream, I don't know what is. We're always trying to get more. We're always trying to keep up. Solomon's saying, look, I tried this. He was even at the top, and he still felt this way. If somebody had something he didn't have, he coveted it. In chapter 5, he said, whoever loves money never has enough money. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. My dad said this years ago to me. He said, the more money you have, the more money you want, generally. It's not true of everybody, but generally that's true. And we're never satisfied. We always want more. We always want to get a little bit more. It never ends, does it? In chapter 6, he says, all man's efforts are for his mouth, yet his appetite is never satisfied. Can't get content. Can't get satisfied. I, I, I spare myself no pleasure, says Solomon, and still, it does not deliver. You see the theme here? <laughs> Life is meaningless. How about chapter 7? He says, money and wisdom are shelters, but the advantage of knowledge is that it preserves the life of its possessor. We all want financial security, which is a good thing to have, but if you had to be rich or stupid, which would you choose? Or <laughs> let me put it a different way. <laughs> if, you, if you had to be rich and stupid or poor and smart, what would you choose? Yeah, poor and, and smart, because you can always regain money, right? You can regain everything, practically. The only thing you can't regain is time, which really was the theme of the uh, probably the most famous movie ever made which I think is 70 or 75 years old this year. Orson Welles' movie, Citizen Kane. You ever see Citizen Kane? Remember the whole mystery in Citizen Kane was he, his last words were, Rosebud, Rosebud. And the whole movie was, why, did he, why, was, why were those his last words? Why were those his last words? Do you remember? 
Reclaiming his youth. Reclaiming his youth because Rosebud was the name of his sled right. as a kid. He had everything. He had everything he wanted. It was modeled after uh, Hearst, you know, the big ty newspaper tycoon. He had everything he wanted. But the one thing he couldn't get back was his youth. A little bit later in verse 29, he says, God made mankind upright, but men have gone in search of many schemes. This was our problem from the beginning, right? He made Adam upright. He made Eve upright, but we had a scheme. We wanted something that we thought we didn't have and we wanted. And so we took it. And from that point, all the trouble started. It wasn't the apple in the tree. It was the pear on the ground that was the, the problem. In chapter 8, he says, righteous men who get what the wicked deserve and wicked men who get what the righteous deserve, he says, this too, I say, is meaningless. It's meaningless. I see righteous people getting bad things, and I see wicked people getting good things. This makes no sense. This is meaningless. This is the way the world goes. It's the meaning of life. There is no meaning. In chapter 9, he says, the same destiny overtakes us all. The hearts of men, moreover, are full of evil, and there is madness in their hearts while they live, and afterward they join the dead. That's it. We're all going the same place. I don't care if you're rich or poor, smart or dumb, good or wicked. You're all going the same place. What's the point? What's, what is the point? Let's eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. Is that it? Actually, he gives some of that advice in here. He says, enjoy life with your wife, whom you love all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun, all your meaningless days. You might as well just enjoy it with your wife. In his case, wives. That's what it's about. This is kind of an uplifting study, isn't it? <laughs> Don't you like this? It's kind of uplifting. In, verse, or in chapter 10, he says, A feast is made for laughter, and wine makes life merry, but money is the answer for everything. Man, if there ever is wisdom there, there it is right there, right? When it comes to the world, money is the answer for everything. You want to find out why something's happening? Follow the money, right? That's kind of cynical, but in most cases it works. Follow the money. And it is kind of fun to feast. It is kind of fun to go have a meal with folks and... Wine makes life grow merry. That's fun, right? It's fun to do that kind of stuff. But, you know, at the end of the day, money's the answer for everything. Then in verse 8 of chapter 11, he says, However many years a man may live, let him enjoy them all, but let him remember the days of darkness, for they will be many. Everything to come is meaningless. Yeah, you may like it while you're young, but watch out. The days of darkness are coming. And it's all meaningless. Forget it. Now, if there ever is a book that I would want people who are not Christians to read, it would be this one. Because this is the book that really reflects back to them the zeitgeist or the way of the world. This is just human wisdom right here, isn't it? If there is no God... This is the way things are. Now, we might want to ask ourselves, Solomon, what were you thinking when you wrote this? Why is this in the Bible? And 
Is life really meaningless? Is it really meaningless? You may have heard this weekend um, of an accident on Independence Avenue, in Independence Boulevard, motorcycle um, was coming down Independence Boulevard on Saturday night and there were two people on the motorcycle and there was some construction that just, some construction vehicles that apparently were not well marked and the motorcycle, in order to avoid colliding with a car, the driver tried to put it down and slide in without causing too much damage. Unfortunately, the woman on the back got thrown off and was killed. And the man uh, sustained some injuries. Well, that man was my neighbor. And so today, I just learned of this yesterday, I walked over to his house, and I don't know him very well. He's, he's on the other side of the street, about three houses down. And um, I went into his house, and I said, uh, he was wearing a neck brace. This is about three o'clock this afternoon. He's wearing this neck brace, and he's struggling. I said, Daryl, don't get up, but he got up. His face is all bloody. He's got cuts everywhere. And I don't even think he knew my name. We would just wave at one another. And uh, every once in a while, we'd say a couple of words when I'd see him out on the street. And I just grabbed his hand and then hugged him. And he just cried on my shoulder. And I said, Daryl, this is not your fault. The reason Susan loved you is because you were a man and you loved to ride and she loved to ride and you weren't afraid and she wouldn't change anything about you. It's not your fault. And he just looked at me and he cried and he said, thank you, thank you. He just had built his dream house with his wife just two years ago on our street. Beautiful home, he's a builder. Everybody that comes down our street goes, wow, I love that house. Just two years ago, they just moved in. They have a daughter who's a junior in high school named Morgan. Their full name is the Fries, Daryl and Susan Fries and Morgan Fries. Please pray for him right now. The funeral's to, uh, Thursday. But he would trade everything, every material thing he has to get his wife back. Is, was her life meaningless? Was she just molecules in motion? Was she just a meat machine? Were his feelings of love for her and his decision to love her, were they the product of a previous natural cause? That there is no true meaning out there? I don't think so. In fact, what is the true meaning? Is it meaningless? Well, let's go back to Crick for a second. Remember he said this? The astonishing hypothesis is that you, your joys and your sorrows, your memories and your ambitions, your sense of personal identity and free will are in fact no more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. Let me ask you this question. 
Imagine if Crick had written this in his book. Imagine if he had said this. The astonishing hypothesis is that my scientific conclusions that I write in this book are in fact no more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. Can everyone see that his philosophy is self-defeating? That here he's saying that every thought we have is a product of a previous natural cause. Well, if that's the case, so are his thoughts. And his entire hypothesis is wrong. If life has no meaning, we would never know it. If we're just meat machines, we don't even know truth. We just know what helps us survive. In order to say life has no meaning, you have to assume your sentence has meaning. You have to assume there's meaning out there in order to even make that assessment. In order to know something's arbitrary, you have to know something that's immovable and stationary. There is meaning. You say, well, then why was Solomon going off like this? Not everything in the Bible is a principle to live by. What? Oh, that sounds strange. The Bible records a lot of things that you ought not do. Do you notice that? Not everything the Bible records God approves of. There are things in here, like there are lies and murders and rapes and Satan's lie to begin with, or Satan's disobedience to begin with, followed by Adam and Eve. Not everything recorded in the Bible is something you ought to live by. But why is Solomon going off talking about life being meaningless? We'll get to it. Hang on. This is self-defeating, we can all see. So the idea that there is no objective meaning in life implies that there's at least meaning enough to know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> so let's take a better look. Your life is not a glorified monopoly game. What is the purpose of your life and my life and everybody's life out there? What is it? It's the same purpose for which Harvard University began. You say, Harvard University, that liberal institution up in Taxachusetts? That can't be true. Yes, Harvard University was started by a clergyman. John Harvard, he was a clergyman. In fact, most of our original college institutions, I think, if I'm not mistaken, 100 of, of our first 110 or so, or 106 of our first 108 colleges and universities were started by Christians. John Harvard was a clergyman. Do you know what their charter was in 1636? You really got to dig to find this because they don't want to admit it now. This was their charter, and this is the purpose of your life and mine. Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life, John 17, 3, and therefore to lay Christ in the bottom as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. The purpose of this life and the future life is to know God and make him known. Now, when I say no, and when God says no here, we don't just mean intellectually. Even the demons know that God exists. James says it. The half-brother of Jesus who wrote the book of James, he says the demons know that God exists, but they tremble. See, so there's a difference between belief that and belief in. Belief that is getting evidence, getting evidence that God exists, that Jesus rose from the dead, that the Bible is true. That's in Christian terms called apologetics. That's what we do mostly on college campuses. Apologetic doesn't mean you're saying you're sorry. It means you're providing evidence. It comes from the Greek word apologia, which means to defend. You're providing evidence that what you think is true. Belief that has to do with evidence, that God exists, that Jesus rose from the dead, that the Bible is true. But all the belief that in the world won't get you saved because the demons have better belief that than we do. 
They know God exists better than we do. They're in the spiritual realm. We're not. But there is a second kind of belief, and it's called belief in. And when the Bible's talking about faith, most of the time it's talking about belief in. What's the difference? Belief in is better termed as trust, putting your trust in God. And a lot of people don't want to do that. I've had recent events on college campuses where I've had um, atheists during the Q&A get really antagonistic. And at one point up in Michigan, there was one guy over here really antagonistic during the Q&A. I finally stopped. I said, sir, 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 do you mind if I ask you a question? And if I do, will you give me an honest answer? He said, sure, go ahead. I said, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? And immediately he yelled, no! I said, no, no. You Wait, wait, wait. You claim to be an atheist. You claim somebody to be reasonable, somebody who follows reason at all costs. Never mind that there can be no such thing as reason if atheism is true because we're just molecules in motion. We're not really thinking, we're reacting. But let's set that aside. <laughs> you believe that somebody, or you believe you're somebody who's reasonable. And I ask you, if something were true, would you believe it? And you say no? Why are we even doing this? Why don't we just go have pizza? Right? Why are you here? Because you could give him all the belief that in the world, and he still wouldn't believe. He didn't want to believe. Christopher Hitchens, in our first debate, was asked by the moderator, what would change your mind? You know what he said? Nothing. Nothing? Is the problem here or here? In his case, it's here. He doesn't want to believe. He doesn't want to give up what he thinks he'd have to give up to become a Christian. He doesn't want to give up his friends that he thinks he'll have to give up or his job or whatever he's doing or his girlfriend or drugs or whatever he's into. He doesn't want to do it. I'm not talking about Hitchens now. I'm just talking about any atheist. Many atheists don't want to give that up. But belief in is putting your trust in. When I first met my wife 26 years ago, I got evidence that she would be a good wife. But all the evidence in the world didn't make her my wife. I then had to take a, take, a, take a step of trust in her to ask her to be my wife. And in a momentary lapse of judgment, she said yes. <laughs> so belief that is evidentiary based. Belief in is your will. It's your will. And it's very easy to become a Christian. You just trust in Christ. You're not going to have all the answers, but you should have enough to say, I think that Christ rose from the dead. If that's the case, then you're ready to be a Christian. And our job is to try and bring people, first of all, ourselves, the knowledge in Christ, not just intellectual, but volitional as well, to trust in him and to spread that word to others. That's why we're here, to know God and to make him known. And everybody can do that in a different way. You have gifts and talents I don't have. You know people I'll never know. You can do it in your own way. Maybe I have gifts and talents you don't have, and I know people you'll never know. That's why it's a body. That's why we all have to come together. That's why the mission of the church is what, according to Ephesians 4? To equip the saints to do ministry. The pastor's not supposed to do all the ministry. Hey, I'm going to bring an unbeliever in here, pastor, see if you can get him saved. No. We're supposed to be doing that. We're supposed to be going out there and edifying people. And by the way, he didn't say make believers. What did he say? What did Christ say? He said make disciples. There's a difference. That takes time. That takes effort. That takes pouring your life into somebody. By the way, Harvard's early motto was truth for Christ in the church. Look how far they've fallen away. <laughs> Where does this come from? It actually comes from John 17.3, as the Harvard Charter said. Now, this is eternal life, said Jesus, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. 
That's the purpose, to know God. The greatest commandment according to Jesus is what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Christians don't get brownie points for being stupid. We're supposed to know what we believe and why we believe it. And the second then is to love your neighbor as yourself. So you, you're all, you've all hit on it, service to others and all this. What kind of service, though? To know God and to make Him known. That's why we're here. It even says it in the Old Testament, in Jeremiah. Jeremiah says, this is what the Lord says. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for in these I delight. If you're going to boast in anything, boast that you know Christ, that you know God. Not just in an intellectual way, but in a heart way. This has been illustrated before. You ever hear of the guy who tightroped across the Niagara Falls? He tightropes across the Niagara Falls. He asks the crowd, hey, do you think we, I can do that? Yeah, sure, go. And he does it. Then he comes back. And then he says, uh, now you think I can do that with a wheelbarrow? And they all go, oh, sure you can. If you can do it with that big pole, you can probably do it with a wheelbarrow. He goes, he gets a wheelbarrow up there and he goes, okay, who's going to get in? <laughs> Nobody gets in, right? They believe that he can do it, but they don't want to put their trust in him. Well, to be saved, you got to put your trust in, not just say, I think that God exists, or I think that Jesus rose from the dead. God's not going to force anybody into heaven against that person's will. If you don't want God now, you're not going to want him in eternity. Paul says that God determines the times and places so that we will seek him. Paul said in Acts 17, when he's talking to the Athenians, the atheists and the pantheists on Mars Hill, he says, from one man, God made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and that he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. God has put you in a place so that you will seek him. And we're here in America. There has never been a country and there had never been more resources to know God than right here, right now. We have no excuses. Jesus in another context says, to whom much is given, much will be required, right? We've got everything and more than anyone else has ever had. We've got more Bible programs, more data, more computer programs, more commentaries, more dictionaries, more archaeological discoveries, more scientific discoveries. We've got more ways to communicate God's truth. And yet, many of us are running from God. I'm not saying the people here in this room, I'm saying the society in general. Now let's go back to Solomon. We'll end there with Solomon. Solomon tried to know everything but God and was left with despair. That's basically what happened to Solomon. He's an old man probably when he's writing Ecclesiastes. He's tried it all. Wine, women, wealth, works, wisdom didn't work. But he ends well. In chapter 12, this is the sum of the whole book. In the first half of chapter 12, he starts talking about the days of trouble coming, when things start going badly for you when you're old. You don't see as well anymore. You don't hear as well anymore. You don't think as well anymore. And he sums it all up. What's the real meaning? Here's what he says. 
beginning in verse 10. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads, something that prods you. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Who's the shepherd in the Bible? God, and ultimately Jesus equates himself to the shepherd. So these sayings are given to us by God. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them, of making many books there is no end, and much study wearies the body. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. So he's saying, look, you want to sum it all up? You can study books till the day you die, but I'm going to summarize it for you here. Here's what you're to do. Here's the conclusion of the matter right here. This is how the book ends. He says... Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Solomon goes through and gives you the zeitgeist. He gives you what people think about life today, that there is no God and we can go on and do whatever we want. Well, it's all meaningless. And he says, at the end, wait a minute. I think I found something here. Here's your duty. Life isn't meaningless. It's only meaningless if there is no God. It may be meaningless under the sun, the S-U-N, but it's not meaningless under the sun, S-O-N. There is true meaning out there to know him and make him known. So how should we live then? This will take just a couple of minutes. Remember we said failure is not an option? The problem is failure is an option in life. It wasn't an option for Gene Kranz and the Apollo 13 team. They said, we're not going to fail. But many people choose to fail in life. And men, most of us have been in business or are in business. Here's what we want to avoid. Don't be a success in business, but a failure in life. Don't be like Solomon. Don't get it all. And then you get to the end of your life and realize you've been climbing the wrong ladder. So what are we to do? You can be wrong about a lot of things. You can be wrong about business. You can be wrong about sports. You can be wrong about medicine, wrong about health, wrong about a lot of things, but you can't be wrong about eternity. If you're wrong about eternity, that's a problem. Why? Because you're going to be dead a lot longer than you're going to be alive. Don't be wrong about eternity. Jesus himself said, what good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Nothing. It'll be a glorified monopoly game. And then we forfeit our soul for that? No way. Look, there's only two ways to learn something. What are the two ways? You can learn by your own experience or somebody else's experience. You don't have enough time to learn from your own experience. <laughs> you don't want to make all the mistakes yourself, right? Learn from Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived prior to Jesus. He said, I tried it all. Don't bother. <laughs> Meaningless, ultimately. Now, by the way, before I do that, let me point out here, I'm not saying that we, we shouldn't be in business and we shouldn't make, we need to. We couldn't have this church without money. We couldn't be do, send missionaries out there without money. Money is the answer for a lot of things. I'm not trying to say that's not important. It is. I like money. I use it. <laughs> but if that's the focus, we've lost it. It's a means to an end. It's not an end itself. It's a means to an end. It's not an end itself. Jesus said you can't serve both God and money. So what is the theme of the Bible in one word? If you had to sum up the Bible in one word, what would the word be? It is true. No question. It's not... Trust. Close. What are you going to say, Alan? Faith. Faith. 
Yeah, but faith in order to accomplish what? Life. Yeah, we're hovering around it here. <laughs> the one word summary of the Bible is, is redemption. Paradise lost in Genesis is paradise regained in Revelation. Everything in between is the story of redemption. Look, we lost it, and by the way, history is going somewhere. That's one of the things the Jews brought to intellectualism is that it's not a cyclical thing. We're going somewhere. We have a goal. We're moving in a direction. What we lost in Genesis, we were separated from God. We chose to be separated from God. What we regain in Revelation, ultimately, and through our own salvation experience, we can choose to be reconnected with God. Everything in between Genesis and Revelation is the story of redemption. And in order for the world to be redeemed, God has to do all the work. He's got to come in in human form, die a brutal death for our sins, not his because he was innocent. And that's the only way God can remain just and justify sinners. He punishes an innocent <coughs> voluntary substitute in our place. God actually redeems us. He comes into the world to do it. In fact, how do I know this is true? Because the Bible tells us that's the purpose. In 2 Timothy verses 3, or chapter 3, verses 14 to 17, by the way, this is the last book Paul wrote, second to last chapter he wrote. He says, as for you, talking to Timothy, continue what you have learned, for how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and teaching, training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The purpose of this book is to make you wise unto salvation, to get you saved and sanctified so you can carry out the Great Commission. You can carry out knowing God and making him known. That's the purpose. And along the way, there's a lot of wisdom that you can use for everyday life. In fact, Solomon wrote down a bunch of it in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. So if we want to know how to live this life with this purpose, we've got to go to the scriptures and unpack them. And that's exactly what we're going to do. We need to be men of courage. How many saw the movie Braveheart? Have you seen Braveheart? Okay, there's a point in the movie Braveheart where William Wallace, played by Mel Gibson, <coughs> is trying to get the Scottish nobles to join him in the rebellion against England. And if you notice, this is a true story. It happened about 1200 or so AD, the 1200s. The English were treating the Scots very poorly. In fact, what they were doing is they were, uh, when a, a Scottish woman got married, the English said, one of the English lords has right to have intercourse with that woman before the husband does because they wanted to basically breed the Scots out and just have all these English babies. You can imagine that this did not make the Scots happy. And William Wallace began the rebellion and he's trying to get these English lords to join him who, by the way, are on the payroll of the King of England. So they don't want to bite the hand that feeds them, right? And he's trying to convince them they ought to go William Wallace is trying to convince these English lords to go with him. And one of the lords represented by the guy here in this short clip um, is sort of the leader of these lords. And watch what Gibson or William Wallace says to him. Check this out. Wait. 
I respect what you said. But remember that these men have lands and castles. It's much to risk. And the common man that bleeds on the battlefield, does he risk less? No. But from top to bottom, this country has got no sense of itself. It's uh, nobles share allegiance with England. It's clans war with each other. Aye. Aye. If you make enemies on both sides of the border, you'll end up dead. We all end up dead. It's just a question of how and uh, why. I'm not a coward. I want what you want, but we need the nobles. We need them. Aye, nobles. <laughs> now tell me, what does that mean to be noble? Your title gives you claim to the throne of our country. But men don't follow titles. They follow courage. Now, our people know you. Noble and common, they respect you. And if you would just lead them to freedom, they'd follow you. And so would I. Men don't follow titles, they follow courage. And in America anyway, and in the church, we need to start being men of courage. We need to start standing up and saying, here's the direction we're going in. This is the direction God has given us. And we need to stand up and take all the arrows. And you'll get people to follow you. Greg and I were talking over, over dinner that most people out there are followers, they're not leaders. We need to be leaders. If we're going to turn the church around and ultimately turn the country around, we need to do it. Can't be waiting for other people to do it. We're called to do it. There's one problem with courage, and that is, if you don't have it, you won't get anything else done. Winston Churchill said, the number one virtue you need to have is courage, because if you don't have courage, you won't do anything else. You've got to have courage.